Hello friends, thanks so much for joining me on another episode of the Access Potential Podcast. You're here with John Marsh and today I've got a really special guest on the episode. Her name is Natalie Nixon. Natalie is an international speaker, she's an author. Uh, she is the founder of a consultancy company called Figure Eight Thinking. And she writes the book on creativity. She's written a great book, it's called The Creativity Leap. And I first came across Natalie's work uh, on the back of a Seth Godin podcast and was instantly drawn into what she was talking about. Um, all things creativity, in particular, how we can start to look at this a little bit more seriously and more constructively, I guess, now as you know, business owners, uh, whether that's small and independent or if you're in a bigger company or in an organization sort of setting. So we talk all about this, um, you know, as a lot of you who have listened to the show for a while and have kind of uh, listened to some of my work, I believe that creativity is a really, really important uh, part of, I guess, the future and the work that we do going forward whether that's through your marketing, whether that's through innovation. Uh, it's become kind of critical in particular as a lot of the smaller sectors that I work in really get saturated. So a lot of health and wellness sectors, um, what we're seeing is the people who are able to, you know, pause, able to innovate, able to sort of engage that right brain thinking, that sort of creative mode, are really able to excel and kind of find a stride which is really cool and really reach uh, the particular people that they want to serve and start to build some really cool resonance with them over time. So I see it as a really important area that's worth uh, that's worth not only attention but also uh, effort and time and focus to kind of dive into this and, and sort of pull what you can out of it and start to set up some practices um, in your own work or your own day to be able to sort of foster this creativity. So we go through it all and, and kind of demystify a lot of it, break it all down. Really grateful for this conversation. Uh, Nat is over in Philadelphia. So we had a little bit of a time difference and it was really great to connect and uh, find out a little bit more about her story and uh, learn a little bit more about creativity. So without further ado, let's jump into it. This is John Marsh. You're listening to the Access Potential podcast. And today I'm here with Natalie Nixon, author of The Creativity League. I guess what, the way that I sort of looked at this stuff, um, I remember when I was about 16, it would have been looking at what I was going to go and study at, at, at uh, university. And I grew up in New Zealand and I was going to come over here to Australia. And it was like, engineering or art and i was like completely split between the two but the thing was that we were told or i kind of believed for you know for whatever reasons that uh there was going to be no job in art and go do study something in engineering because you're going to get a job and it's going to be sort of like safer and um so once i did that i let go of the the kind of the label, the idea of creativity and basically put the head down and just studied and did all the engineering stuff for a long time and um, came back at it really late, you know, back to things like photography and, and just general 
you know, creativity in my own work, uh, maybe 10 years later. And I saw from uh, reading your book and listening that you've had quite a diverse background as well and done a lot of different things. And I'm interested, where did this all start for you? Like bringing back up the, the creativity side of everything and how did that kind of pop back into your life or was it always there? Yes, well, that's a really important question for all of us to ponder about um, where in our lives we've had the, the sparks in the rebirth moments and where in our lives we've kind of snuffed it out or we've started to feel it snuffing out and how we respond to that. So I will say that um, first off in, in my childhood, in my, in my family home, um, the way I understood creativity were two ways. One was kind of in a traditional lens of how we, how a lot of people tend to simplify creativity and only thinking about it in the context of art. And so um, my parents are both very musically oriented. My, my father was a big jazz head, a big jazz aficionado. So I grew up hearing a lot of blue note jazz records as the soundscape in my home. And I grew up hearing a lot of classical, European classical music because my mother actually studied voice. She studied to be an opera singer. She wanted to be an opera singer as a, as a, as a teenager, but she, she struggled with, an, with a horrible case of, of stage fright. And actually the story is she never made it to the audition at Oberlin Conservatory. And so she ended up being a French major in college because she still thought, well, maybe one day because opera singers need to know different languages. Mm. But at any rate, that was kind of um, a background soundscape in, in our home. And I studied dance from a very young age, from age four. And um, so in, in that, to that extent, um, creativity was very much a part of my upbringing. And sorry, art was very much, the arts were very much a part of my upbringing. And I remember when I was about six years old, the teacher asked us, what do you want to be when you grow up? Think about the things you want to be when you grow up. And the three things I had, I remember I wrote down, I wanted to either be a writer, a nurse, or a dancer. <clears throat> so I'm doing uh, two, about two of those uh, quite a bit still. Um, and my parents never snuffed that out. Now, the other way, in addition to the arts, that creativity was a big part of the way I grew up. Um, I grew up in a very small space. So my parents owned a, um, what's called here in Philly, a, a duplex, a duplex twin. So Philadelphia has very diverse housing stock. And our home, <clears throat> our home was two stories where there was a first floor apartment and a second floor apartment. And so um, my parents always typically rented out the first floor apartment. And our home was the second floor apartment, which was a two bedroom apartment. And um, I didn't have my own room until I was a sophomore in college. And I grew up hearing from my mother, um, your home must be a place of beauty that you return to. And so we learned really early on that you had to make up your bed in the morning, you had to put things away. Cause you know that when you live in a small space, a couple things get out of, out of order and it looks like a hurricane hit it. But what, I, but what I really, when I talk about creativity in this sense was my mother's incredible aptitude and ability for space design mm -hmm. for her to carve out nooks and spaces that had meaning for where we read for where we played for for as we got older little finding out little quiet places for us to study and do our work 
And so I, I kind of was, that was seeping into uh, my cell structure, but I really understood retrospectively how incredibly creative that was for, for my parents to raise a family and, and um, that kind of confined space. Um, and so then years later in college, as a sophomore, I um, was struck with my first world existential problem. I did not know what to major in, and I did not want to disappoint my parents, like so many of us, right? And my parents gave me an incredible gift as they heard me go through all the stuff that I was failing or thought was boring or wasn't interested in. They kept asking, well, what are you interested in? What do you enjoy? Mm. And finally, I admitted that I really, <clears throat> excuse me, that I really loved anthropology and Africana studies. And almost at the same time, they said, that's what you should study. And my father said, you have to turn down jobs if you study what you love. Mm. And it was this gift because it was this load that lifted from my shoulders. So what has ended up happening for me in my life is that I have become much more attuned to when I'm starting to feel that spark diminish, mm. when I'm starting to feel that creativity dissipate. It, because as, as you know, in the way I think about creativity, all of us are hardwired to be creative, whether you're an engineer or a scientist or a teacher or a plumber, mm. to be human is to be hardwired to be creative. It's just a matter of how we're exercising it. And so yeah. much of that requires us to be intuitive, to be still at times, to really listen to what that nudge is telling us. I loved early in the book, there was so much right in the first like few chapters that were just uh, really resonated. And one bit you said that it was not a case of thinking, you know, similar to what you just mentioned, like not a case of thinking like, am I analytical or am I creative? And it's not this like, kind of ones and zero spectrum. And um, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about. It's like, it's like, like, you know, uh, like all of us, right? Like every, everyone has the, I guess the capacity and the, and the um, ability It's kind of this, this practice that we can step into. Um, maybe it would be helpful just for the people listening could we define uh, creativity or, or maybe outline it in the context of how you're speaking about it? Yes, 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 yes. So I wanted to make sure I created, came up with a definition of creativity that would be simple and that would be accessible to people mm -hmm. because of my efforts to democratize creativity. As, as you know, I've written about how I, I feel like creativity has been ghettoized siloed in the arts that's yeah. not fair to artists is that beneficial to our society at large so the way i think about creativity the way i define it is that it's our ability to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems full stop toggling mm -hmm. between wonder and rigor to solve problems sometimes i add on this additional part in order to um uh, add value to scale and value could be financial value social value uh, cultural value. But when we are creative, that's ultimately what we're doing. And I think about wonder as awe, audacity, asking big blue sky, what if questions. And it's also about pausing. And rigor is about 
discipline and time on task and focus and skill development. And it's often very solitary work and it's not too sexy. And it's the rigor component of creativity that we forsake. We like to mystify creativity. We like to kind of romanticize it. And that way we get away with saying, oh, it's only those types over there who are creative. And we're typically talking about artists. Mm. What's actually, what we're saying is that they are spending the time making the effort to wrestle with the ambiguity mm. and discomfort of, pro of a creative process. Creativity is really hard to engage in because you, it, it, it loves mess <laughs> and um, mess is hard to navigate. Uh, so that's how I think about creativity is toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems. Mm. There were two, there were two things that stuck out to me there. One, um, I love the concept of, uh, well, both sides, but the pause. And, um, there's been a few times for me where I've, where I've like sold one business or kind of moved on to a new thing, moved towns or countries. Um, we moved all over the place growing up. Like there was never really one sort of kind of home. So we'd move to a new place and that the pause always at the time felt like horrible because it was like the, the floor is kind of pulled under you or even you, you move on from one business or sell it or whatever. And it's like kind of your day-to-day -day thing is like kind of disrupted. Mm -hmm. And um, often or every time actually you'd sit in that for a little while and then something would come through and mm -hmm. it would click and it was like, okay. And you couldn't come up with the idea before, you know, um, is that something that you see as, difficult for us, you know, I look, work with a lot of small business owners and it's just like infinite number of tasks. It's like right. trying to do everything. Is the pause something that people find difficult? Yes, it's, it's difficult for me. And I, right before we got on our call, I took one of my daydream breaks oh. and I am committed to daydreaming. It's, 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 you know, whatever, think back to your childhood to, to, whatever your, were your little odd proclivities that were just natural to you that kind of gave you some energized you in some way, but you would get comments about it, but you realize it's just how you're wired, like revisit those. So I was a mighty daydreamer as a kid. And, um, as I have grown up and life gets busier and more saturated, um, I do find that I'll still daydream, but what I've started to build into my, my daily practice are timed daydream breaks. So sometimes I can only afford 90 seconds. Right before I call, I, 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 I sat outside, put on my jacket, a scarf, because late October, it's getting chilly, and um, had two minutes, and I just gazed up at the be beautiful blue sky this afternoon. And what I'm always amazed at is every time I come back out of that kind of reverie, when I come out of a, a daydream break, how much calmer I feel, how um, I feel more centered, recharged. We live in Philadelphia, which is a city that has an incredible uh, in integration of, of um, natural wooded space throughout the city. So whether you live in the hood or a Tony neighborhood, you have access to creeks and trails and woods. And so we, we live right across the street from, from 
a small woods. And sometimes when I have time to just take a quick walk, I, I call it a dip in the woods. You know, the Japanese have in their language a term called forest bathing. Mm. And now we know that the, the scientific research shows how the healing properties of dipping into the forest, right? Because the way the sun filters through the leaves, the chlorophyll and, and, the, and the positive effects and the positive hormones that are triggered. And as we're walking through uh, dirt and, and dead leaves, um, all of the bacteria, good bacteria that gets emitted, it's important for us to inhale and breathe in. But there's a little creek across the street in those woods. And I'm always delighted that, you know, you, you, we all have these, we know those moments where you're, you're coming out of, of an urban environment, you go into the woods and you, you slowly but surely feel the quiet. And I always stand by this creek. And after about 30 seconds, what you realize is that it's not so quiet. Mm. What you realize are all these new sounds. There's a whole universe of activity. And what that does for me when I'm pausing in that way, it helps me to like get over myself. It helps me to um, really understand myself as part of a lot, much larger context. I always try to promise myself that I'm going to remember the sound of, of, of the creek, that there's always, even when I'm feeling stumped, and stuck in something, it's a reminder there are always things in motion and action, things I have no control over that somehow might converge to affect me. And so it's that reminder to wait. And what's fascinating right now during the COVID-19 quarantine, some of my corporate clients, they were kind of braggadocious in the summer and saying, oh, we're, we've never been busier. You know, we're, we're not pausing, we're, we're just, you know, keeping it moving. And without understanding that if they don't pause, they're actually going to be reactionary. They're not going to be creative. And I learned, my teachers come from everywhere. And one of my professional crushes is on um, Esther Perel. Mm -hmm. I love Esther Perel, the, the, the psychoanalyst therapist. Um, and I, I listened to her podcast, which is about relationships. Um, yeah. and right? But I, I get so much learning from them. But I remember on one of the podcast episodes, she talks about how the opposite of creativity is being reactionary. And I was like, wow, mind blown. So true, right? So pausing helps us to not be so reactionary and to actually be creative, mm -hmm. um, whether we're talking about ourselves, our own personal lives or our businesses. I love that. And it, it just makes a point of you know, whether it's the big time frames, like you're stuck in life, you don't know, you know, you're moving on or whatever it is, or the 90 seconds. Like, I love that. Um, the little micro, the little micro ones, I've got a few places where I go for those two, and it, it does make a huge difference. Yes. Um, I'm interested in, um, well, there's two things. One was uh, you had, there were two lines. One was create like your life depends on it. I think it was like the title of a chapter. And I may have messed that up a little bit, but it was close, I think. And then mm -hmm. another one was the future depends on creativity. The future uh, works. Similar. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I see this so much right now in small business, like the markets become saturated for a lot of the industries that I'm in over the last 10 years. 
and or that the that the clients are in over the last 10 years and what we're looking for is is resonance with particular people particular businesses who are willing to bring their version of their art into the work that they're doing you know and it might be in in you know a fairly plain kind of vanilla industry but to bring themselves to it and to bring creating to it in whatever way that is um I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that uh, that importance and kind of where you see us as and how, how you see this sort of playing out a little bit. Yeah, so it's incredibly important, especially as small business owners. So uh, let me a caveat, there's a difference between being a business owner and being an entrepreneur and the, the, the nuanced distinction I'm making is that a, I'm, I'm gonna propose that a business owner is not necessarily adept at adapting, at shifting, at, at, at shaking things up because they, they just get into their mode of this is how we do things. This is what our customers want because we've always been churning this out. Versus entrepreneurs, uh, an inc incredible entrepreneurs are fundamentally really good at falling in love with people's problems. If you fall, if you're able to fall in love with people's problems, you will never be out of business because you should not be delivering a service experience product that you like to do. If you're in business, if you're in business, you should be delivering a service product experience that, that you have skill in that hopefully brings you joy and that people need that's resolving and solving a problem that people have. So um here, here's a very minor example but in march when COVID really was settling in in the united states and my my book launched uh june of 2020 by april we realized my initial idea of how i was going to launch the book was not going to happen mm. so my initial launch book launch party idea was um to reserve i i had already reserved the rooftop of the Free Library of Philadelphia, which is a beautiful, iconic building on the Parkway of Philadelphia. I'm a nerd. I, was, I grew up in Philadelphia, Philly public library system. And it was going to be like coming full circle for me. And we realized that that can't happen. And so I had to really practice what I preach. And what I ended up doing instead turned out to be a much more interesting, dynamic, collaborative effort and so what i ended up doing instead was i had a series of collaborative conversations just prior to the official book launch day on the day of and just after and with some really amazing people um like seth godin like john maeda uh fei wu who's a digital marketing expert uh galit ariel who's an augmented reality uh thought leader and to really model what I'm talking about in terms of creativity being driven by the three eyes, which is part of my creativity framework. And the three eyes are inquiry, improvisation, and intuition. And in order to really pivot and adjust, you've got to be super curious, curious about other people, curious about what's the remix and a, and a retrofit of what I'm doing. Um, what's another sector or industry that I never even considered that, you know, let me ask, maybe, maybe they'd be really interested in what I'm talking about, what I'm into and, 
and it will actually add value to my work, to my craft, because I'll have to figure out a new delivery system or a new way to meet their needs given what my jam is, given what my skill set is. So that curiosity piece, which is the part of that, that eye of inquiry, I can't emphasize enough is so important and goes back to that um, advice that if you can follow up with people's problems by being curious, you'll never run, you'll never be out of business. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Uh, I wonder if you, this rem the concept of remixing is really cool and I really love that. And it feels like it's an, um, it feels like it could be an entry point if somebody is not, um, feeling as though, you know, identifying as, you know, I'm really creative and I, I set aside time for these things and it's something that, you know, it's part of me or, or whatever, but the remixing is like, it, it kind of feels like, Hey, like what else are you interested in, in your life? What lights you up or what lights up your customers or the people you serve? Um, what else is going on in the world? Like, could you bring a little bit of that flavor in? Is that kind of, does that resonate at all? Is that kind of something that people could think about a little bit? Yes, absolutely. It's too much pressure yeah. to think that you must be original. One of the chapters is um, there's nothing new under the sun. Mm. And I'll give two examples. Picasso, when he shifted to cubism, and that kind of minimalist representation of the human form and, and objects and, and such, he was actually biting off of African sculpture. So he was an astute observer of the African aesthetic. And it's like, huh, this is interesting. How am I incorporating to the, to the way I have been approaching painting, et cetera. So um, that's an example of a remix, which, you know, blew him up. And, you know, he's known for that, um, whether it's the blue period or, or whatever we think about with Picasso. Another example is the entrepreneur, Sarah Blakely. Mm -hmm. I am a huge fan of um, the web series Masterclass. My husband gifted me an, a year-long subscription to Masterclass for Mother's Day, and I love, love, love it. And I've just finished um, the... Uh, lessons from Sarah Blakely, Blakely, who is an entrepreneur, founder of Spanx. And, you know, she wholeheartedly admits that what she did was cut off the bottoms of pantyhose. Now, she did a lot more than that in terms of, of testing and experimenting and prototyping the right fabrication and work with engineers and yarn mills and such to really figure out what would be the best ultimate fabrication. But she cut off pantyhose, the bottoms of pantyhose in order to, to make the Spanx. And so some people might say, oh, well, I could have thought of that, but you didn't, right? Yeah. You didn't do that. You yeah. didn't go from the idea to action and then yeah. figure out how to evolve it and how to build it. So that's another example of the remix. And then I also really love um, Austin Cleon, who, mm -hmm. who wrote a great book called um, Steal Like an Artist. And what that really is, 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 reminding us is that we have to be deeply observant yeah. we have to be deeply curious like sometimes the answers are hiding in plain sight it's just turning it upside down it's just walking around it it's walking away for 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 some time and then revisiting it and so there really is nothing new under the sun that's not the pressure is not to be original it's about what's the repurposing, the recombinations. Another example I give in the book, The Creativity Leap, is I reference um, 
how African-American kids living in poor urban environments in the 70s and 80s were the victims of some of the largest cutbacks in funding for arts education. So things like music education, you know, be slowly but surely um, became non-existent in some public schools in some cities in, in the United States. So what did young African-American male teenagers do? They had this turntable, this record player, and they started experimenting with the sound of that needle on vinyl that led to scratching, which is one of the iconic sound elements in hip hop music. Mm. And hip hop today is the largest music form in the world, right? Yeah. So creativity loves constraints. Creativity loves that remixing, that, that mashup of elements and ideas that stretch things. But it's always fascinating to me I don't know about you, that, that the, the oftentimes it comes out of need. It comes mm. out of constraints on time, constraints yeah. on finances, constraints on people talent. Yeah, 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 totally. So, yeah, so many uh, examples pop into my head of that happening. One, one thing I'm interested in is like, say you, you, uh, you know, you mentioned not like someone says, Oh, I could have done that with, with Sarah Blakely and they didn't. Right. And that's always happening, right? Like, Oh, I could have, I could have done Uber. I could have done all these things. Yeah. But you didn't like, you didn't, you didn't move forward. Right. But the thing I'm interested in is like, it feels like there's a little bit of, of whether it's resilience or like, say we sit down together. I'm like, Hey, what about this? And you're like, nah, that wouldn't work. Or, you know, over time, if I start to feel if I'm, if I'm, whether it's my environment or, or my education or whatever, if I'm not comfortable in the idea kind of like not flying or not working, what's sort of the kind of get out of that creative jail move, sort of ninja move to like be okay with, um, I guess being okay with experimenting, being okay with the stuff like um, maybe not working, you know, maybe just failing or, or whatever it is. Like, how do I set up that safe space or that kind of trust in whether it's, I guess, in, in an organization or maybe for small business, like in my life to be okay, to train myself to kind of take those ideas further. You know what I mean? I love that question, John. And I love your, a phrase get, get out of creative jail i'm gonna i'm gonna use that and i will credit you um i really love that phrase it's a great one so there so it's so funny you're, you're asking this question because i had a conversation with a friend who just moved she's now living and working in switzerland she's american and um part of our conversation we were reflecting on times when we have just been stupidly audacious because for for two, for there were so there were two drivers so to answer your question the, the the clip notes answer to your question is you have got to rev up inside of you the ability the capacity to be stupidly audacious and there's two ways that shows up sometimes it's out of anger and sometimes it's just kind of glib like i'm not going to get this anyway so let me just try it 
And so what this friend was, was describing to me was one of the ways she landed this incredible opportunity. She was having a low point in the company where she was, and it was, she called it like rage application. She just decided to just apply for jobs. And she was like, there's no way they're going to hire me. I'm just going to do it. I'm just so fed up with how someone talks to me. Someone doesn't respect me. I'm, or I, you know, I'm just fed up. And so it was a rage application and she ended up getting a call. So, so, so that's one I'll return to that, to that, the value of that rage. Yeah. And the other an example comes from me. I remember when I was, when I was a, a very young new professor, I was an assistant professor. I spent 16 years of my career in academia and my Dean forwarded to me an opportunity to apply for a fellowship. And I thought to myself, I am not going to get this fellowship. There is no way. I don't have a PhD. I've only been teaching in academia for like a year and a half. And maybe I even had a glass of wine nearby. And I totally filled out the application like, researcher will need new laptop computer. Researcher will need a, a full uh, round trip ticket to South Africa and back. I mean, I'm just making it. I was like, they're never going to give me this. And I got the fellowship. Now, what do you do with those early wins of getting out of creativity jail? You make them part of your inventory. You have to start to collect an inventory of those feelings, those moments when, so that you can tap back into mm. them when it's time, when you hit those, when you're, when you're, you're, you're drifting back to creativity jail and, you, and, it's, and, and it's not flowing. Yeah. Right. So a lot of it, but the theme here is you can't take yourself too seriously. Mm. You have to, you have to be able to get over yourself or in that famous scene in Moonstruck with Cher, um, I forget the, I forget the, the actor who played opposite her, but he's confessing his love, professing his love to her. And she's like, she slaps him on the cheek. She says, snap out of it. Like yeah. you got to snap out of it. And yeah. you have to not take yourself so seriously. And if it's and if it's the frustration or the rage that, that in that moment, use that. If it's the like, uh, you know, the glib disbelief, they're never going to pick me. Go for it. Like the, the stakes become so low. So that yeah. that's how I think about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that reframe of um, when people get down. It's like, oh, nobody cares about my work, or nobody cares about what I'm doing. It's like, great, nobody cares. Like, go, go vertical on it. Like, see what right. happens. Yeah, exactly. Um, that was so cool. I love that how you articulated that. Maybe just to round it out, uh, I've just got your book here. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, and I just wanted to go towards the end because in the appendix you've got this section which is really cool which is um, 21 questions and suggestions to jumpstart on your creativity. And um, a couple of them we've talked about here, like number four is like, how often do you daydream? And you talked about having, you know, your own little, um, like identifying proudly as a daydreamer and, and having this little practice. Is there anything else that, you know, thinking about um, people who are pretty strung out, like, like trying to, you know, run their whole kind of business and keep in front of it and keep creating and, and trying to be a little bit more innovative. Is it any, um, I guess, starting points besides reading the book, obviously, but like starting points or things that you think would be kind of fun or cool that they could think about as they're stepping kind of more towards this or they're interested in this stuff? Yes. Um, 
some of them, you know, it's a variation of theme that you and I have been talking about, which is the value of pausing, the, the ability to, to, to step away, whether that's literally, you know, timing breaks. I, I like to work in what I call wonder rigor sprints. Mm. You know, the reality is out of an eight hour day, work day, air quotes, um, we probably are really only super productive for two and a half, three hours of that time. So really identifying your biorhythm and are you more of a morning person? Are you an afternoon person? Where what, are you an evening person? When are you the most generative and dedicating that time, but not working the entire three hours straight. But I like, I find for me 40 minute, 30 to 40 minute time blocks and then take a five minute break and then coming back to it. So that's what I mean by sprints. Um, when I was writing the creativity leap, even now when I'm on writing deadlines, I will do 15 minute tra tranches of, of writing no, turn off the notifications on my phone, no notifications on my laptop are totally off and doing that hits down focused work. So developing new rituals in order to do the focused work of rigor that the creativity process requires is really important. The other thing that's important is to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And a book that was incredibly helpful to me when I um, was going through another one of my first world existential crisis many decades later after uh, being a college student, I was, I was realizing I was no longer fulfilled in my career as a professor. And I was horrified at that uh, admission because my whole identity and ego and status was wrapped up in that what next would I do? And it required about a year's worth of work, which I've now converted into my group coaching practice to help other people get unstuck. But one of the things I did was I went on a listening tour and some people call these curiosity chats. It's really important to ask for help. It gives you perspective on yourself, right? It helps you to zoom out. And I read a book um, called The Art of Asking by Gosh, I'm so sorry. I always, she, she's won, a, her, her book was nominated for a Grammy. She, she's part of a punk rock band called, called the Dresden Dolls. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm so sorry, I'm forgetting her name. Anyway, The Art of Asking was an incredibly helpful book to me because it, it's memoir and it really, Amanda Palmer, excuse me, mm -hmm. Amanda Palmer is the author of The Art of Asking. And in that book, she's really breaking down where she struggled sometimes with asking, even though a lot of her performance art was asking total strangers to give her money. She was part of one of the first successful Kickstarter campaigns that, that raised over a million dollars, et cetera, et cetera. So, so hearing her perspective about how she, she humbly through baby steps, you know, she would couch surf in New Zealand and Australia as she was doing her gigs and would ask her fans, hey, we're headed your way. Do you have a place for us to stay? Yeah. So that requires humility. And that's part of the process of, of getting generative again and getting unstuck in the creativity process. Yeah, I love that. I love just that the feeling of generative as well. Uh, uh, the other thing I loved just quickly is how you owned when you spoke about your your 40 minute sprints, you know, that or, or like your, I loved how the tone that you expressed it, how you really own what, is right for you and i feel like there's all of this stuff like you know you need to do this time block and this type of morning routine and like 
for me, mine's like mine's really early in the morning for like a few hours, like before even anyone's up and nothing's yeah. happening. And everyone, you know, if, if I followed the advice of you need to go exercise early, it would throw my whole, it throws it throw a whole day. Yeah. It ruins me. <laughs> Nothing gets done. Right. So I, th- I loved how you express that. And I think that's so cool. And it kind of ties everything together. Like, you know, not taking it too seriously, being curious, you know, like finding what works for, for you, what works for me and like everyone else out there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We have to be true to ourselves we have to pay attention. I, I speak decent Portuguese. I lived in Brazil. I lived in Portugal. And there's an expression in Portuguese. My, my friend Maria de Graça, she would say this to me like, because I'm a daydreamer. And she would say, Natalie, paga atenção, paga atenção. And I love that phrase, paga, pay atenção, because it's, a, it's succinctly hits to the point, pay attention. And that is a... Um, a heralding reminder for me in my work, in my life, to snap out of my daydreams and to pay attention. But the, the, the pay attention to yourself, pay attention to what's working for you. All the advice and things that we can read and people we can listen to, you have to hack what really you can incorporate effectively into your own work and life. And that just takes trying it out, practice it, see what works, shelve what doesn't and keep it moving yeah i love that well let's i guess probably a good place to wrap it up there and um i have to say it was really really cool to get you to to speak with you to hear the stories as well and to find out a little more context um it's so nice to to read the book and then you know and then listen but then also be able to speak as well so i really appreciate you taking the time and sharing with this, uh, this work with everyone else. I know, um, I know that, um, it's new for a lot of the people who I work with and I know they're they're hungry. They're very interested and they're diving headfirst into more creative work. Um, I give a lot of books around this area and it's, I, I see a lot of people getting lit up. So I know they'll take a lot from, uh, everything that you've shared. So thank you. Well, thank you so much, John. I have to say, I really liked the tone and pacing of of our time together. It really just felt very conversational. And I really appreciate you inviting me and sharing your platform. And I hope one day I can get to Australia, New Zealand, meet you in person and and, and share more in person. So thank you. Yeah, let's do that. Thank you so much. Um, Have a great day over there. Thinking about everyone over there as well. Um, yeah, so all the best for the next week. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening in. I hope you enjoyed that conversation on creativity. Make sure to go check out Natalie's work and take a look at uh, her book, The Creativity Leap. And feel free to reach out if you have any questions on this episode. Uh, you can send them along to John at johntmarsh.com. Uh, you can also head over to the website. It's under construction at the moment, but there is a link. You can sign up for the daily blog if you haven't yet. Uh, and a couple other little bits and pieces as I get that website uh, revamped as well. Thanks again and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.